0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit hfy. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. I just want to give a quick thanks to the Tier 5 channel members and Patreons Bob the Dragon, Peter Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Duck Machine, Try Again 95, and Astrea the Dreamer. Thank you all very, very much. Chapter 361 Memoirs. I was born, possibly shocking enough, in the appreciation of generosity, a habitation complex, Erudra Anti 521, now named Shalakai System, on the 54th level. I was my parents' fourth child, which meant their license and mandatory pairing was over. I was moved by the time I was a year old to the creche down on 64th level. I was a mediocre student at best, with abysmal mathematics scores. I was uninterested in history, such as it was, but was able to focus on tasks well enough to slowly but surely ascend through the unified school system. Upon my graduation, I took the tests, like any good Lanaklan, and had a short list of less than twenty employment offers. Being young, merely twenty-two, I had grown up seeing the Unity videos on the Tri-V, visions of Lanaklan all gazing upward at a future that was guarded by the unified military forces. Handsome stallions and their sashes, vests and flank coverings marching in unison down the street with their rifles, armor-covered soldiers guarding spaceports and colonies. Of course, The young me had no idea that those videos had been recorded tens of thousands of years ago, that the ideals I bought so wholeheartedly into were set down hundreds of thousands of years ago. I signed up on a Level 5 recruitment office. I was excited at the vast, dizzying array of jobs that I was being offered by the Unified Military Recruitment System. I can still remember trotting out the recruitment center and new sash proclaiming to everyone that I was now a recruit, awaiting the next shuttle. I remember standing in the elevator, feeling proud of myself. I would be a tan color. My reflexes, my eyesight acuity, my focus and concentration offering me a job that had a wonderful signing bonus. Why, I even had a waiver for cost of training, lodging, food and pay for my trainers. Two days before I was to board the vessel, a colt from level 84 put an illegal needle pistol into the back of my head and had me transfer the balance of my account to his. Afterwards, he took my sash. Still, two days later, I found myself on three-month voyage to where I would receive my basic military training. I was broke, but wiser. My sash would not protect me. Being part of the unified military forces impressed nobody. Little did I know, when I stepped onto the tarmac at the end of the flight, that I was on the collision course that would, less than three years later, have me shoulder to shoulder with enraged lemurs. Eventually, beyond all reasonable predictions, I would find myself wrapped in the Terran war steel and driven by Terran-designed hover systems wielding atomic sledgehammer in a place where even death had died. Excerpt from We Were the Land of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. Vuxton watched as the battle screen passed overhead, it was meters thick, rubbing apart the vehicles, exploding traffic guides, shredding plasteel street guardrails. His whole mouth went tingly, sparks danced on his armor, and 471 flashed three unhappy faces in a row. Then it was clear. PFC's Shatrak started to move forward, but 2nd Lieutenant Palunex grabbed his armor, stopping him. The second battle screen moved by, making the air wavy and distorted colors appearing in streaks from the meter's thick protective field. You'd be dead, dumbass, Plunox said. Buxton watched as Casey edged up, keeping about two meters back from the opening. He shaded his eyes again and looked. It's big. Twenty meters high, trucks. Road wheels and running gears, car covered by armor. No platforms. I can see three access points for additional robotic ancillary mechanisms. One open and dropping what looks like a quadrupedal mine of robots. They're only the size of a small ground car, the Terran said. Only, Buxton thought to himself, grinning inside his helmet, back before the first and second Talcon, something that size would have terrified him. Now he was holding an Imperium of the Wrath Stubber, formerly wielded by Persian Immortal, whatever that was, of the Martial Order of Xerxes. He had faced far, far worse than mining robots the size of a ground car with less in his hands. Six access points on the top, the Terran said. He looked further up. Those cables are thick, but under a lot of tension. I can see the stretching in some points. The pulleys look like battle steel, and I can see some warping and wobbling. The axles are at least five meters thick. Probably hard in battle steel. You know a lot, Lieutenant Blunex, said softly. You pick up a lot after a few years, Casey said. He reached back and pulled the six-barrel minigun around and started punching codes into the small hollow keyboard that popped up. Buxton managed not to snort. Plan, sir, Blunex asked Vuxton, deferring to the only Talkin born first lieutenant in the Talcan Marines so far. Not sure. Let Sergeant Casey and Sergeant Addicts make an appraisal, Buxton said. He leaned up and put his helmet against the other lieutenants. These two NCOs have together over a thousand years of military experience. We have time. We listen to them. Oh, Brunex said. He noticed that Sergeant Casey had a nanoforge welded to the back of his minigun's frame, and it was starting to steam. The Talcon Marine Power Armor can jump high enough to reach the top of that section there with a running start, Addox said. Vuxton saw that Addox was streaming video to him and opened it up. The vehicle was a monster. Multiple platforms articulated at several points in the midsection, the multiple wheels with scoops big enough to snatch up a tank, the street and a couple tons of dirt, the thick cables and girders. Addox highlighted the top of the lowest section, which looked like a massive base plate. Buxton tagged five locations for landing points and his armors computer automatically showed him where everyone would need to jump and at what angle. We'll attract some attention as soon as we break from this pipe, Plunix said. We'll use masking smoke, Addox said. Casey gave a, hmm, three, two mix, masking smoke and prism chaff. That will should do it. Addox nodded and Buxton paid attention. Battle screen, cleaned the parking lot, at least, Addox added. There's gotta be a debris clearing system, Casey said. He did a slow look. And this thing is freaking slow. How the tanks can outrun them. But then I'll just home in on another underground shelter and rip everyone out of it. Do you think that's what I was doing? Felix asked. Without a doubt, Gracie said quietly. That thing would do some damage even if it was Wallsteel's shelter. Physics is on its side. We need to decide quick. He's halfway across, Haddock said. He turned to Vuxton. Sir? We'll toss masking agents, move up to the jump points, reach the first level, jump for this point on the second level. Then we'll figure out what to do, Buxton said. Remember, it's not a vehicle. It's a semi-intelligent autonomous mining machine, Casey said. He had let the minigun pull back around on its back. Are you sure you should come along? You're only wearing a loading frame, Lennox said. Sir, I'll be all right. If I'm wrong, I'll be dead, and you can tell me I told you so, as Graves' registration scrapes up my shadow with a spoon, Casey answered, grinning. He started pulling grenades from a canister rack on the side of his Pontiac and tossing them out. Buxton noted that his eyes were growing amber, not by much, but still amber. Get ready, Buxton said, using the armor system to mark where everyone should stand, what path they should take, where they should jump, and where they would land. Addox threw a couple of grenades out, the canisters hissing as they deployed prism-laden mist. Everyone shifted inside the pipe. ''Get ready!'' Predix said. ''Go! Go! Go! Go!'' Addox yelled, bursting out of the culvert at a run. A armroo saw, through the distortion of the thick battle screens, little black figures running across the gap between the inside of the battle screen and the hull of the massive vehicle. So far, all the robots were shooting their mining lasers at the Great Herd tanks, to no effect. He knew if they saw the little invaders, they'd swarm them. All tanks, go to rapid fire, pound that shield, he ordered, yelling over the communications link. He held down the trigger on the plasma gun. Thankful, a talcum had jumped up onto the back deck of his tank with a canister of ammo only a few moments prior. The plasma bright orange shrieked through the air. The quad barrels thick munitions detonating with a greasy, yellowish green snap. Tank guns started roaring. Tank guns started roaring, pounding the battle screens to no avail. Sir, the enemy vehicle has increased its power to the rear quadrants of the shield. A armru's electronic warfare officer relayed from the scanning tech. Look for any weakening areas. A armoru ordered swinging his weapon through the long arc that got enough space that the rapid-fire shots had a foot or two space between them. How are the Terrans doing? Dremsel snarled, stomping the firing lever on the main gun. His gunner was wiping blood out of his eyes from where his face had slammed against the sight and cut his forehead by ramming the edge of the helmet against his eyebrows. The heavy round hit the precursor vehicle, another mining vehicle, and detonated with a whitish-blue flash. The antimatter armor defeating going off. The density collapsing tungsten steel rod hit a split second after, when half of the energy released had died down to light, x-rays, and electromagnetic hash. Contrary to popular belief, antimatter energy release was not one to one, even if you made it anti-hydrogen to hydrogen, but enough energy released to blow massive holes in armor that was supposed to be impenetrable when heat and pressure were applied. The tungsten steel rod was only two inches thick, only three feet long, with narrow, long fins on the four sides, and a blunt point for the forward quarter. Normally, it would weigh only 75 pounds. It had been squeezed by graviton fields, collapsed more matter into a smaller space. It was a quarter of a ton of tungsten steel. The rod, white hot from passing through the still ravening antimatter-matter recombination fog, slammed deep into the armor. The inner lining turned white and bulged for a second before exploding into the internal spaces, which were used for cooling and ore movement. The vehicle was lobotomized, still driving forward unpowered tracks, but the burrowing lasers going dead and drill but slowing down. B-39 hit it from the side, killing the massive engines. Dremsel was fighting his way into the mass of the vehicle, streaming out from the wounded Jotun-class precursor leading his brigade straight into hell. they were flanking and spearheading for nearly a hundred great herd tanks that had gotten mixed into their lines but the most high of the 423rd armored battalion had started accepting crimson's orders as soon as they were shouted the great herd tanks had their external weapon systems on automatic thickening their heavy terran main battle tanks point defense blowing missiles out of the air with plasma shots The main guns boomed to slam heavy plasma rounds into the air mobile units, gutting them and sending them tumbling to the ground to explode amidst the landlocked brethren. Still odd for Uzd had his hands wrapped around the gun controls, his face pressed against the holographic-assisted gunnery sight. Seeing where the barrel was pointed, his data link was useless, too much electronic warfare turning the entire area into nothing but screaming chaos. Twice, he had felt the weird tingle of the Terran attack program jump to his data link, hold still for a second, and then jump again. Not one of the big self aware ones, more like the small ones that rapidly looked for an open data port to jump to and just blare false signals. Gunnery assistant, 15th class, to odd for felt all four of his stomachs clenched as he got a clean shot on what looked like a flying flatworm. The entire bottom covered with glowing, sparking, shedding precursor graviton engines. Target! he yelled. Shot! his tank commander yelled back. Sto Oddverazd stomped on the paddle. Shot out! The round hit metal platform, easily 200 feet long, dead center, where a cluster of pods was showering sparks. Hit! Sto Oddverazd yelled as the tank lurched over debris that had been the metro bench. The flatworm exploded in midair, raining down on topside battle screens of the tanks in a shower of sparks. Target down! The us yelled, watching through the scope as the tank most high swung the copula around towards another target. Target! Dremsel just nodded, grinding his teeth, raking the upper stories of the building. He'd seen shadows in the inside of the microplast windows and knew what that meant. The windows exploded inward and the flames burst out, carrying shattered precursor armor. Pieces of robot, identifiable as the combat or near-combat models, showered from the sky, exploding on the battle screens of the tanks. Still odd for Ozd put a round into the building, overriding the tank's computer, attempting to keep him from firing into a civilian building. The roof of the building exploded outward as plasma cannon liberated its energy. The carrot flashed yellow. Buxton felt his knee ache as he shoved off, kicking a graviton boost, trusting 471 to keep him level as he sailed through the air. Buxton's gut clenched, shattered shards at old, terrible memories teasing the edges of his consciousness from other times that he'd flown through the air. None of them good. He landed on target just like his onboards had promised. Lieutenant Plunax and both of the Terran Senior NCOs landed around him, Vuxton kept count of all the Talcan that made it. The squad leaders, Terran NCOs, striking with their squads which had made it to their appointed jump points, all of them. He breathed a sigh of relief that the training and experience were paying off. Casey was looking up. Next floor, he said. He jumped up, grabbing protrusions with his loading frame's hand and pulling himself up to the next level. The Talon Marines just used the graviton systems to climb the thick, pebbled battle steel. Twice more they moved, until they were near the top of the massive machine. Six hundred meters up. Vuxton shook his head, looking around. He didn't see any hatches, no way to get inside. They were what looked like tracks sunk into the battle steel armor, slowly rotating. Topside tracks, 471 prompted before Vuxton could even ask. What's the plan now? Me? I thought you had one, Linux said. Vuxton chuckled. We get inside, we find the thing's brain or heart, and we kill it, he said. He looked forward, where he could see the precursor vehicles trying to slow the Terran tanks or force them back into the clattering maw of the giant mining machine. So, how do we get in, Plannik said. Casey held up a hand, making a fist-pumping motion, and a whitish frame appeared around the loading frame's fist. Fusion torch, Addox said as Casey knelt down and began to work. Well... This is promises to be fun, Buxton said. The battle screens around him flared as the great herd kept hammering at them. End of chapter Chapter 362 Memoirs I arrived at the basic military course on the warm afternoon, trotting down the corridor from where the shuttle had landed and into the concourse. I had my PLAS sheet with my military service number emblazoned on it, and I kept checking it against the signs that were scattered around. When I found the number, I entered the room. With nearly a hundred other lanekta I waited to be told what to do next. Eventually, a drive came on, a robot delivered papers, and we were welcomed to one of the major Unified Military Forces Armored Vehicle Training Planets. We were the next class, 10,000 strong, joining 10 million already in trading. Trading that, at first, was merely how to walk in lines, in synchronization, and how to appear. Chin up, upper shoulders back, arms folded, lower spine straight. Then to fire a rifle, how to wear armor, how to address one another, how to pull out paperwork, how to use communications devices, how to give proper obeisance to our superiors. In training, I discovered that there were millions of my fellow trainees who had flunked out the various points. Only, instead of being sent home or to the mines, they were just forced to start over again. I also discovered that if you failed and recycled, all the costs were then waived. Most of the hundred in my platoon failed in the first few weeks in order to recycle and go through without accruing debt. As for myself, I had a waiver, so I just applied myself as I always had. Steadily, working, being patient, and not giving up. Another discovery startled me. In the next week after the final testing, you could fail for almost no reason to be recycled. This was after class standing lists were put out, and awards gained during training were passed out. i achieved a certificate of outstanding achievement in the field of excellence of parade marching, while several of my peers had been motivated to be awarded. Those that wanted it, that didn't get it, Drop back and recycle. I cared not. I wasn't a marcher. I was a tanker. And tankers don't walk. I graduated 2,388 out of 12,455. One of the few who had a guaranteed job after basic military training. Because I was higher than 2,500 in standing, I was asked if I wished to select a new military employment field. No, I wanted to be a tanker. I was promoted when I was sent to the MEF school and arrived with rank and awards on my sash. My class was a hundred thousand strong, including the Lanaklan who had recycled during the MEFs. I was spoken to by the trainers. I had scored both low and high enough that I could choose to receive Neo-Sapien crew member training. I considered it, pondering over it at lunch. My fellow trainees warned against it that it could affect my future promotions and standings. I took the training. Three months of learning how to be a gunner in a tank outfitted to allow Neo-Sapiens and contribute to the might of the Unified Council. I graduated first out of nine Lanaklan who had chosen the training. I was promoted again and offered tank crew member multi-role training, which would cover everything from tank commander to gunner to driver. I did so. I would forever give up the opportunity to be an officer as no officer would stoop as low as to drive or fire the main gun. Still, I liked the idea, so I took the option. I was offered multi-armored vehicle proficiency school. Again, I could not be an officer. I took the offer. Over the next year, I learned not only how to fire the gun, but every other position in the tank and each type of tank. During training, my ability as a gunner was brought out. I was the trainee host champ and set a record when I hit an 874 targets out of 1,200, setting a new record by over 20 hits. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, a Terran tank crew was somewhere learning to hit 800 out of 1,000, including while on the move, Terrans that my star nation had declared war upon with an unannounced attack upon the non-belligerent worlds that were only peripherally aligned with the Terran Confederacy of Alliance Systems. I was training to combat corporate forces or breakaway systems. Terrans were training to kill anything that came into their gun sights. I was in simulators. They trained in real tanks. I trained to fight on settled worlds where I could leave the tank and breathe through the air. They trained as if the universe themselves would kill them if they so much as peeked outside the tank. When the news came that the Unified Council was at war with the Terran Confederacy, I like my fellow trainees, were confused at how the Terrans thought that they could face the might of the Great Herd. Many of my fellow trainees were afraid that the war would be over by the time our training was finished. On the training world, things progressed as they had for millions of years. Something we had constantly drilled into us, tank tactics had been finalized, streamlined, and made entirely efficient tens of millions of years ago we were learning what the Great Herd had used to trample under all opposition. I loved the tanks, unstoppable engines of destruction, armed with plasma weapons to bring forth the fury of a star upon the foes of the Unified Council. Battlesteel armor capable of resisting any weapon brought to bear. Thick battle screens that would prevent all but the heaviest weapons from reaching the heavily armored hull. Powerful hover fans allowing the tanks to cross any terrain, even water. Applying myself to training as I had everything else, with patience, attention to detail, and a hard work ethic, I was the first time complete on my travel through the training cycle. The only first time through graduate in the entire host. No other trainee had graduated after a single cycle of training in nearly 300,000 years. Many of my peers mocked me, told me that I was foolish not to remain in the cycles of training, to pass up chances for promotion based on how long I was in the Unified Military Forces, pass up the chance at awards, and the chance of making contacts with those higher ranking than me. They didn't understand my desire to go somewhere and help defend the great herd. Unlike my peers, when graduation came and I was 525th out of 9037, I accepted graduation instead of requesting that I be recycled and was assigned to the great grand Most High A'amaru's forces. Little did I know that the simple random choice of units had slated me to become more than I'd ever thought. I was twenty-five years old when I landed that sunny day, and pranced around excitedly at the thought of being assigned to my very own tank. Excerpt from We Were the Lanaclan of the Atomic Hooves, a Memoir. A armorus, but cut over the side of his tank, raking the advanced robots out of his quad barrel. He pulled it back and up when it started beeping, slapping the lever to eject nitrogen coolant across the barrels. The talon undid the latches and opened the cover for the ammunition hopper. He grabbed the empty can of ever and threw it to the side of the tank—an act that would have drawn punishment and a fine a mere two weeks earlier. The Talkin slapped a full ammo can in, pulled a length out of the belt, and Mag attached the links together. They closed the lever, readied the two latches, and lightly slapped a armaru on the back of his helmet. Clear! The talkin yelled, then jumped off, landing smoothly and running back to where the Terran self-propelled munitions nanoforge was operating, its battle screens thick and heavy. A armaru didn't bother saying anything, just lowering the quad barrel and started firing again. Private second-class Tumkert had an icon flashing already on his HUD. Platic land, main battle tank, two exterior guns out of ammo, medical issue. Before he could accept the mission, someone else grabbed it and the request for more external weapon ammo popped up. Tumkert had to admit that it was more than slightly disconcerting that he was being relegated to ferrying armor for the tanks. But he wasn't infantry. He was part of the Ordnance, the 1st Tarkin Marine Division which meant light power armor and fearing ammo to whoever needed it. Although loading ammunition in the middle of a firefight was an entirely new thing. Left, 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 527 flashed on the inside of his visor. Tumkert looked to the left, seeing a dozen flexible metal tentacles erupting out of a hole in the ground. Before the mechanical enemy could fully pull itself out, Tumkert had grabbed his magak rifle from his back and started shooting, marking the robot for everyone else. Tentacles popped loose or shattered as the main body of the robot, the size of a good-sized cargo lifter, pulled itself out from the ground. His shots just bounced off the thick armor, and Kurt wished his armor had a grenade or missile launcher. One of the assault infantry guys landed next to Kurt. the rocket pack on his right shoulder shifting slightly as the micromotors ensured the rocket pack was aiming at the right spot. The rocket pack fired once, the missile hitting the robot's chassis and blowing it into scrap. Tom Kurt hurtled back towards the nanoforge as the assault infantry guy tossed a fusion grenade into the hole and jumped again to land on the back of the tank, making the rear end wobble. Stardverazd felt the tank wobble as it smashed aside a ferrocrete wall that the battle screen had passed over, the heavy prow shattering the poured ferrocrete slabs. He had his face pressed against the site both to push his helmet against his head, to keep pressure on the cut across his head, just in front of his side eyes, and to try see better. The tank he was in had rotated to the outside, giving the heavy Terran tank a chance to move inside the formation. The Terran tank had taken a heavy hit to its starboard armor and had smoke pouring out of it, the outside track blown free. But Star asked wasn't thinking about the Leber tank. He was aiming at the massive precursor vehicle that had damaged it. ''Fire already!'' the tank most high shouted. His gunner had loaded the tank round and had it pressurizing, the tank's firing chamber already nearing dangerous pressure levels. ''Not yet!'' Sto'atva Ast said quietly, knowing his helmet mic would pick it up. Otfer Ast shifted the angle of the copula slightly, the armor whirring slightly. He fluttered the magnetic rails, clearing any strange charges. ''Shoot it!'' the driver yelled. ''Not yet!'' Mr. Utfahast said. The machine screens were as thick as the Terran's tanks, flickering as they bounced Terran war shot or slowed it enough for the armor to deflect or withstand. But he had seen it. He knew he had. Fire it right now! The tank most high ordered. Not yet! Mr. Ost reached out with a lower right hand and slapped the button to cut everyone else out of the firing loop as the gun sight slid over the battle screen. The firing bar was already deployed down to his front hooves, and he lifted on hoof. The tank most high opened his mouth and ordered the tank computer to override to Utfast's controls, when the Lunning suddenly stomped on the firing bar, rather than using the more traditional firing stud. SHOT OUT! With a whirr, the tank's main gun fired an overpressurized plasma around. The flare and backlash erasing shadows as it went white and blue rather than the standard orange and green. Mr. Oddfast saw the loading icon, Lash, and stomped on the bar again. SHOT OUT! The tank slid slightly, the driver struggling to compensate as the autoloader whirred. SHOT OUT! The first round crossed the two-kilometer space, hitting not the battle screen, but the wreckage of a transit bus that was passed over and shredding. The wreckage exploded. The battle screen flickered as the projectiles tried to adjust. The second round hit the debris and turned it into half matter, half energy, ravening up the side of the battle screen in a plume of hellfire. The third shot screamed through the middle of the plasma blast, the outer layer of the ion stripped away by its passage through the center of the star. A massive machine had opened a thermal venting port, no bigger than two meters. Storad for Ast's third shot hit it square, blowing apart the thermal venting system boiling away the liquids that the heat sinks depended on, and shattering the ceramics of the systems. Wiring caught fire, electrical impulses raced through the system. The thermal coolant tank ruptured, converted into steam in an enclosed area, and refused to be denied. The side of the vehicle exploded outwards. Two tearing tanks put their heavy kinetic rounds into the suddenly vulnerable side, and the vehicle exploded. Colonel Dremsel saw the great herd tank cripple the precursor combat vehicle, and his two men kill it out of the corner of his eye, his brain noticing it all even as it just registered that the vehicle that had tried to frank the serrated wedge formation had been killed. The weight of metal that he was smashing into was increased. More and more tanks were getting damaged, but Dremsel only had a few choices, none of them good. The biggest and most obvious one was the massive mining robot behind them. True, it wasn't moving very fast, barely 22 kilometers an hour. But the damn thing was so big and tough that it was little more than a mobile wall pushing him straight into the enemy. The river was on one side, and while he could order the tanks to button up, he didn't hit the river, just emerging on the other side. He had a bad feeling about that river that he had learned to pay attention back when he was a lowly captain. Then two precursor space vessels, a Jin and a Jotun, both pumping out combatants. The Jotun was pushing combat robots hard and fast. The Jin was fielding mining robots, which were actually doing better than the combat vehicles. Dremsel glanced at what one of these recon drones had shown. Both precursor machines had cleared avenues between each other as well as behind them. The Jin was shipping resources to the Jotun, and the Jotun and the Jin were both shipping resources to something else. The fast recon drone had spotted what it was, nearly fifteen miles away. Well enough to get a silhouette of it, see the fires on the hull, see the smoke pouring out of it. A juggernaut, the size of a metropolis. Lightly armored compared to the Devastator or a Dreadnought, it had obviously taken a coming in. Drimsel checked his data link. The juggernaut was listed as destroyed in action. Sat recon showed fires burning on the hull and massive cracks and craters. It was bent in the middle, a huge fissure nearly half a mile wide in the middle. The fast recon drone had shown that nearly a dozen of the pre-cursor machines were feeding it resources, combat robots, ore holders, and other gear. Trying to bring Big Brother back to life, huh? Tribsel thought. He checked his route. 12th Regiment was fighting hard to get to Jotun. The Talk marines had wanted to go scouted, but Dremsel had cancelled the scouting mission that Trucker had ordered and told them to stay tight to tanks. He had two-thirds of the great herd harrying the flanks and rear of the gobbler, the rest mixed with these tanks. 16th Infantry Brigade Warborg was closing in on the Jotun fast, but he was throwing out a wall of mechs to stop them. Had actually bogged them down to the point that the Warborgs had called in their big brothers, the War Mechs who would take nearly an hour to reach the Warborgs. The Warborgs were moving, but slowly, the Jotun not doing anything fancy, just using mash drivers to bring debris at the Warborgs, but forcing them to slow down. Dremsel nodded to himself as he caught a flare with his quad barrel. He knew what he had to do. "'Are we going inside?' Lunax asked. Addox shook his head. "'No!' The last thing we want is to be inside and some CDAP manages to get a golden BB in this thing. Then why? Lunox asked, watching Casey finish the cut and start a new one. I want to look-see, Casey said. He pointed to the side. Under those armor bubbles right there are battle screen projectors. Nearly a dozen in that cluster, he continued, still paying attention to the work that he was doing. I want to see if I'm right and that there is a power cluster here. Buxton nodded as 471 tossed up a potential schematic. A main power lead that branched off to different battle screen projectors. Blasted integrity screens! Casey muttered when sparks shot out from where the fusion torch was ripping into the armor. Ought to be a law! Vuxton's armor tossed up a meme of a giant precursor vehicle being handed a ticket by a massive warmac. Precursor mining vessel, you are fined two days' pay for using integrity screens while we try to kill you. Buxton groaned. That bad of a meme showed that he was on a local network only. How bad's the jamming? He asked. Bad, bad, 471 answered. Putting out enough EM to fry yummy, yummy turkey. Plunox turned and looked at the platoon, which was starting to gather up. Thread out! Look for hatches, gaps in the plates, exposed wiring, exposed battle screen projectors. Stop bunching up! The dark marine started moving around. How the hell do you kill something this damn big with weapons we've got? Someone asked, emitting their broadcast ID. How thick's the armor? Buxton asked, looking at the cut. Right here, only a meter, Casey said. At least the outer layer. It's not layered armor, just solid battle steel, since this isn't combat vehicle. Our hot right here too, meaning that there is something underneath it generating a lot of heat. I don't see any thermal sinks or thermal systems, Addox said. This thing is deep-level mining rig, not really built for surface thermal exchange since half of the heat generated would be external. Not too deep, not using that weird stuff, Casey said. His face was shielded by an opaque faceplate that Buxton wasn't sure where the Terran had gotten it from. There was silence for a couple minutes as Casey kept working. Kinda of boring up here, Addix said, looking around. The battle screens are thick enough that not even sound is really getting through. Just this thing's noise. Boring is good, Casey said, starting the last cut. Got a hatch right here, PFC Malcrit called out. Got a old armor plate here, PV2 Sir said. Buxton jogged over to the buckled plate, looking at it. Sometime in the past, the excavator had hit something too tough for the battle steel to ignore, and the plate had bent. There was a patch over it, a light brown rather than the rust colored of the old battle steel. Vuxton put his hand on it and felt an oscillating vibration from the other side. Might have found something good, Vuxton told Private. Good catch. Sir Groot flushed inside his armor and nodded. Vuxton hopped back to where Casey was pulling up a thick slab of armor. Yep, cable junction, the Terran said. Lean forward, one look, 471 said. My greenie wants a better look, Vuxton said, moving up. The cables were thick and heavy, flexible black armor wrapped around the cables that were thick as Buxton's legs. There were six cables coming up from the edge, two running parallel to the edge, and a heavy braided cable running towards the center of the vehicle. Battle screen cabling, 471 said. Backup systems not there must be deeper in or different spot. 471 says that the backups aren't there, either down deeper or on a different spot, Buxton said. So, uh, no use in blowing this junction, Haddox said, shaking his head. Damn it! No maintenance crawly-crawly space, 471 said. There's right datalink cables and a datalink junction. That part was highlighted in Vuxton's vision. 471 says that it's a datalink junction, Vuxton said, pointing it out, marking it so that the others could see it plainly. Power flow analysis and datalink intercept might get system algorithm, 471 said. 471 says he might be able to get the battle screen frequency shift algorithm, Bookstead said. Close enough, 471 said, tapping in two laughing mantle emojis. He cracked the case and climbed out, slapping his rifle on his abdomen and checking his toolkit. The bigger beings watched as 471 moved up and attached detectors to the cables. Superconductor cable, not superluminal optics cable, 471 tisked. What about the encryption? Lunix asked. "'Who's it going to encrypt it from? Itself?' had asked. "'This is a mining rig. It's not supposed to be anywhere near an enemy. "'Add in that unless you're an electron-wiring or self heating Milosirx, "'encrypting signals inside your own system introduces heavy lag.' "'Oh. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility,' Casey mused. "'Fellgrass ships had internal encryption, even signal encryption within their own equipment. "'Aren't those guys who fielded magnesium-titanium armor?' Addix asked, chuckling. What's so funny? Penix asked when Casey nodded, giving a quiet laugh. Magnesium is flammable. Titanium bursts into flame at about the temperature magnesium burns at. The alloy literally burst into flame when hit with a laser pointer. Addix chuckled. They feel that a massive military force attacked some of the Rimworld colonies about 600 years ago. Which promptly burst into flame the minute the paint was scratched, Casey said. Standard operation was to burst from a Magak, then use your laser designator. A tank would burst into flame. Funnier than hell! Never did find out what those guys came from, Addict said. Casey shrugged. They're probably designed to thermite petroleum based armor. Ball 7 1 climbed back up to Buxton, moving around to sit back in his clamshell. He closed it and plugged in. Got it, Ball 7 1 said. Short formula algorithm repeating. He says that he has the algorithm, Buxton said. Well, now what, sir? Agdox asked, looking around. Buxton noticed Plunix was looking at him, too, and resisted a sigh. 471 flashed an amused icon. Stall, Buxton. Stall. Well, after careful consideration, I'm beginning to lean towards the idea of performing, Buxton started, thinking rapidly. Hey, I've got a big skull over here. Looks like it's jammed in the Ford grinders. Corporal Lantix called out. Bookston breathed out a sigh of relief as 471 popped an icon of an umpire yelling, Safe! Skull, Addox said. Think Glory survived? Link me your feed, Bookston ordered. His visor showed what the other marine was seeing. There were massive grinders halfway down. The bucket for the port side wheel would dump their load into a set of grinders, but they were jammed up. A massive black skull, part of an arm, and a hand were visible in the grinders which kept buckling, reversing, and engaging. The hand waved as Vuxton looked through the troopers' cameras. Help a girl out? Glory asked, staring at the tiny specks with the header of Talcan marines. End of chapter Chapter 363 A Great Herd Main Battle Tank Type 19 IXTB-38A-8R-4 150 tons of armor, molecular circuitry, gun, and hover fans, designed 638,000 years ago and never having needed a single upgrade. A 180mm main gun that fires an 8-pound plasma shell. Two rows of 80mm vertical launch systems capable of delivering a variety of variable fused munitions. A driver's, tank commander's, communication officer's, and an electric warfare officer's external 18mm quad barrel plasma machine gun that could be controlled inside or manually by partially exiting the appropriate hatch. Capable of reaching a top speed of nearly 40 miles an hour, the crew can survive inside the compartment for up to 11 hours without discomfort. Single layer medium grade battle screens, often used on light frigate naval vessels, waterproof, soundproof, able to be piloted and operated even in vacuum thanks to 16 anti-gravity pads, although at a much slower speed than normal response. The mighty armored fist of the Unified Council, in support of the Unified Civilized Council. According to my trainers, the last time a single tank had been damaged to the point that it could not fight Excluding operator error or sabotage, was nearly 23,000 years prior to my introduction to my first tank. I was excited as I in-processed. I was to be assigned to one of the most modern tank designs around. Military war machine made manifest. Perfection achieved and domination assured. I was almost eager to the day I was allowed to enter the motor pool and taken to where the tank I would be a crew member of was parked. It was love... At first sight, my fellow crew beings thought that I was a bit insane, to be honest. I worked on my tank, learning everything about it that I could from the Neo-Sapient Mechanics. The driver was happy that I could start it up for maintenance, meaning that he could continue on with his long-running alcohol-related binge. Within a month, I could tear apart my gunner's sight, even the firing mechanism and rebuild it from spare parts found in the multiple supply shed. I even knew workarounds and field repairs that existed only in esoteric manuals and passed down in whispers between mechanics. I earned my gunner's bite at my first live fire range, where I learned that it was best to let my helmet push back a little instead of pushing it against the padded sight. Pushing my face against the padding using only my forward eyes, concentrating on putting each shot right where I wanted it. Everyone took notice when I scored a perfect 1,200 points. Some were happy for me, considered what I'd done proof of the Great Herd's might. Others were jealous, starting whispering campaigns that I had somehow rigged my software to give me an illegal edge during the fly-fire gunnery practice. My fellow gunners led the campaign to have my accomplishments gone over with with a fine-tooth comb, many of them accusing me to my face of cheating. My gunner's station was pulled apart, each block of circuitry examined, each byte of firmware and software got over, even the gearing examined closely to see if I had somehow pulled off the shroud to the base of the barrel and adjusted the microgears that did the minute changes to the barrel angle and elevation. In the end, my score would have been stricken from the record since my gunner's sight had gotten early maintenance, the Neosapien maintenance crew replacing it 20 years before necessary. I would have been sent to do manual labor as punishment, or perhaps worse. There was even talk of a court-martial to put me in my place. Millsack officers had arrived in our motor pool to place me under arrest when the sirens began to wail. Everyone looked around confused, even the Millsack officers at the toe of the siren. They came over my implant at the same time as everyone else's, my lockout being lifted. Attack imminent! precursor vessels in system in force! My platoon Most High began rearing up and down, screaming at all of us to get into ranks for inspection. The platoon Second Most High began galloping in circles, shrieking that we were all going to die. He was wrong. Only most of us were going to die. Excerpt from We Were the Land of the Land of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. I hate landing into an ongoing fight, General Nodrak said, staring at the various tanks. He'd been in the same place for six hours, watching everything take place. The counterattack the first five days since the Confederate forces had arrived was moving in fits and jerks. It's a mess out there, General Mofetta said, watching a map of the megacontinent where her air support assets were spread around wildly. ''Are you concerned, Most High?'' Grand Most High je asked. ''Always, when even not a single one of my men are engaged in combat,'' Nodrak admitted, tapping a cigarette against the railing that he was leaning against. ''There are millions of ways that this can all go sideways on us.'' Sam, so, signal from Space Force, came a cry from below. ''Throw it up here!'' General Nodrak snapped, bringing up a secure hollow part. The twinkling cone resolved into a tired-looking Rigelian female with Admiral's pips on the brow of her armoured vac suit. She had bags under her eyes from stress and her eyes were bloodshot. Static kept rippling across the hologram and General Nodrak knew that it was phased wave plasma motion guns and C-plus cannons firing. General Nodrak here. Can you hear me, Admiral? The Trianidad said slowly and distinctly. She spoke for a second, obviously to someone outside of you. Then looked forward. Admiral Holgork here, General. The rippling intent went over the hologram and she waited a second. We've got a status change out here. Go for that rep, Odrak said. J'ermau watched interested. He had seen how his fellow Lanakalan reacted to a changing situation and obviously getting worse and was curious as to how the lemurs would react. 80 plus point sources just came in on the health space limit. The stellar stabilizers and house-space interdiction craft are from the Crusade of Wrath helped. We have 80-plus harvester class, including what look like mostly new classes, out near the Far Gash Giant, the Admiral said. I repeat back, 80-plus harvesters at the Far Gash Giant, primarily Type 3, Nodrax said. The Admiral nodded. At least 300 are coming straight at you. I've detected two battle cruiser groups to defend the planet. But the heavy hitters have to stop those harvesters from spamming ancillary vehicles and swarming you under, she said. The lights around her flashed and she rocked slightly to the side. We were right not to break up into hunter-killer groups to go after the last of them. Looks like the initial wave was simply to pull us off of position. Nodrak nodded. So whatever gets through, we're on our own, he said gravely. jer felt little bit of fear at that. Sorry, General. Space Force has its hands full up here," she said. "We've already sent out distress beacon. The Crusade ships have sent out all calls for reinforcement, but the case Omaha and Terrasol options are limited for them. Understood. Have your tactical forward what they can. Good luck, Admiral, and fight the ship." NoDruck said, "Pound the ground, General." Admiral said, and then she was gone. Nodrak typed the cigarette a few times, but against the blade arms and J'erimaru'u could smell the scent of freshly cut grain. The Trinidad stared at the tanks down below as he slowly put the cigarette into his mouth and brought out the lighter. J'ermau was slowly learning Confederate map symbols. He could see how the soldier of the V Corps were spread all over the planet, fighting and landing precursors and their forces. General, no drunk, unfolded his lighter with a snap of his fingers, spinning the striker in the same motion and bringing up the yellow flame. He slowly lit the cigarette, staring down. He puffed on it for a moment and exhaled the smoke around the footpads as he put the lighter away. The precursors have adjusted their tactics, he said softly. Never count an enemy staying stupid. How many of the next wave do you think will reach the planet? M.O. asked. In his opinion, the planet was lost, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. But if the lemurs were willing to fight, he would stand right there next to them. He came to light them. Just a little over a third, sixty or so units, Nodrak said. He brought up the map. We got lucky they didn't catch us out of position. We knew that there were still googly eyes in the ore cloud, which meant either they were going to come back again, or we'd missed something. Harvester 29 is breaking up, someone called out from the floor below. Harvester 38 has dropped out of formation. Looks like someone got a piece of his engines. No nodded. Dra- not it. The icons for the lighter units, the dreadnoughts and below were burning brightly. Space Force was concentrating most of their firepower on the massive Harvester-class units that had been forced to drop out further from the gravity well of the stellar mass, burning brightly at the center of the star system. The Trianidad officer knew that every kill counted with the big harvesters. They'd sit out there and keep producing lesser units until the sun burned out if given the chance. He had ordered the Bolo units to switch targets, ordering them to engage the incoming planetary assault units, leaving the already planet-side units on the ground forces. It was a calculated risk, and General Nodruk was an excellent mathematician. General Mafetta's units were hitting the precursors as soon as they made atmosphere. Pushing through the leading wave of fire to attack the precursors during the short time their battle screens were down, the interference from them with entering the atmosphere was scrambling the precursor sensors, putting their point of defense offline. That let General Moffeta's units take long strafing runs and massive machines. Nodrak winds from one of the incoming Jotuns broke up at fifteen thousand meters up, the huge chunks tumbling down to the ground. The planet was taking a pounding. General Nodrak made a motion, bringing up the communication section. The PFC who answered was a Terran had an oversized eyes and whiskers. Is the hypercom still functional? He asked before she could speak. Yes, sir, she said. Contact the target system. Tell them we're going to need a full alvin Cordier," Nodruck said. He sighed. Tell them we're going to have a mass of pre wreckage as well, as uh, he paused to take a deep drag and exhaled keer noticed that it was pushing back the smell of freshly cut grain. We're going to Atom Smasher. We've got over two billion civilians in shelters. Put out the request for evac ships, even on the Junker channels, he said. Yes, sir, the female Terran said. keer wondered why her eyes were so big. If they helped her with the job, if her parents had possessed big eyes in their DNA, or if she had just liked them. Nodrak cut the link and looked at the surrounding officers. I'd give my mandibles to have Tic Tac here. That got chuckles. Nodrak knew that the Elven Queens could repair the damage he was about to order his troops to commit to. But if his men couldn't get it under control, couldn't smash the Precursor threat, there wouldn't be a planet to fix. He could see that the Precursors had arrived to strip mine the planet, probably down to gravel. Part of him wondered why they wanted the planet so bad. The asteroid belts had been mined to nothing over the last 20,000 years. Most of the easily accessible minerals were gone. Then he remembered the elements of the third armor were engaged in mining machines. He looked at the icons of the Trianidad infantry horde and the air mobile clouds, and a small part of him wished that he was a lieutenant again, charging across the ground in armor with his heavy weapons on the top of his abdomen. After a moment, he made a decision. Order all personnel on the planet into armor and draw weapons from the armory, he said. He turned to the two Lanakdalan. beings, I advise you to prepare yourself. Do you think we will be attacked here? emo asked. Can't discount it as at this time, Nadrak said. The reinforcements were a high probability, and it looks like our cards weren't as good as we'd hoped. Surely he won't be defeated, geer said. You won't withdraw. No, drag, shook his head. No. There are too many people in shelters. Too many people hiding. We'll fight to the last. The Confederacy doesn't leave civilians behind to die, General Pulgret said. He stretched, his shoulders popping. Glad I qualified on my armor and weapons two months ago. General Van Du licked her lips, looking around, her eyes moving back and forth. Are we staying here? General Nodrak put away his cigarette. Yes, we will still coordinate the battle, but we must be ready to join the ever-put-upon lower enlisted and junior officers should the precursor assault our command and control area. General Van Du nodded, her lips stretching into a smile. Just standard body armor, or uh, can we? She asked. Put on power armor, Nodrak asked. He gave the equivalent of a shrug. There are several companies of power armor troops here to defend this base. You know that. If you wish to lead them from the front, you have my blessing. General Vandu hurried off. She will see if the taste of combat is as sweet as the fantasy of combat awards. Nodrak said softly. He turned to his aide. Let's suit up. The colonel nodded. This way to the armory, General. The Terran captain next to Ja'eroma'o touched his lower right elbow. When Ja'eroma'o looked at him, he noted how grave the Terran looked. If you land, and land gentlemen would follow me, we should have time to fab and fit you with armor. Ja'eroma'o was proud of himself for how calm he knew he looked as he nodded. Trucker dropped down into his tank, slamming the hatch shut over him. He'd waited till almost the last second. Dang tank shuddered as the lead in the re-wave hit his tank. The wave was thick dust, formerly ferrocrete and asphalt, all ripped up by Picos, a massive precursor combat machine going nose-first into the suburbs beyond the city and scraping the bedrock for nearly eight miles before it had lost momentum and slammed down into the channel it had carved. "'Can't see shit, sir,' the driver said. "'Tell all units to hold position. Give the air a minute to clear,' Truckler ordered." He heard a radio man passing orders and looked at his sensor tech. How many? That's so far entering atmosphere before that big monster hit, he said. Maybe more. The sky is on fire. 331, how's it looking there? Trucker asked. Rough shape, the Manted Engineer Team leader admitted. Try not to let them hit you. We're a tank. We're a little obvious, Trucker chuckled. He tapped his software and tossed a meme at the Manted team of his tank with the great big googly eyes trying to hide behind a tree, with meters of hull and an eye on each side of the tree. The caption read, I are hiding at the bottom. That got back giggling emojis. All regimental commanders check in, Tucker said. He scooped out his tip and slugged it into the can. He repacked it while he waited for his commotech to get in touch with the different regiments. Tucker wants a sit-wrap, Colonel Dremsel heard faintly over the roar of his quad-barrel. "'Tell him I'm busy!' Fremsel yelled back. As soon as they'd moved in between two massive precursors, their air support had become out of play. The sky above him was whirling, gnashing death snow. with 19th Air Cavalry Regiment fighting six times their numbers with seemingly infinite reinforcements. So far, they'd only lost three strikers, but each casualty counted. "'Tell them you are still alive and we've still got tanks even if they're rolling coal,' his combat attack said. He put his hand on his ear. Most high A armory wants to talk to you. Boat him through, Remsel said. He let go of the quad barrel and ducked back into the tank, putting the hatch shut. The last thing he wanted is some precursor machine getting past the battle screens, reaching down into the tank and snatching his head off. Remsel here, go ahead. We're coming up on your rear. We've got 15 sustainment inside our ranks. We had to drop back from the river. Large machines were making landfall. Aiyamaru said. Dremsel closed his eyes, bringing up how his vehicles were arranged. He gave the orders and shot Ayamaru's plan. You keep 15th covered, we'll drop back and get a refit, Dremsel said. Matt, may I ask is our target? Ayamaru asked. He glanced back at the half-dozen Talcan marines on the back deck of his tank. A quick glance showed his second-in-command had several Terrans on the back, and it looked like they were doing something important. Juggernaut! It looks like they almost broke it up, but if they get any auto factories running, we'll be in a lot of trouble if we let it just sit there without busting up the plans, Dremsel said. We'll knock out the supply lines, get close and open fire on it. What about the great gobbler back there? Ayamru asked. He can watch from behind us. He won't be able to catch up to us, Dremsel said. We'll keep ahead of it close enough to keep it in its attention. Keep it from diving, but we won't let it get close. I understand. Your war plan is loaded. My men are moving up, Ayamru said. The tanks of the Great Herd slowed for a moment as the Terran tanks widened the wedge that they were in, giving room for Ayamru to bring in his brigade uptight in the formation and slot into the middle. Once the maneuver was finished, the Lanaklan tanks formed another layer of protection for the lightly armored and lightly shielded, for Terran vehicles, vehicles of the 15th sustainment. A looked through the laser designated Ranger at the big vehicle behind him that his men were still teasing with random shots. He frowned and dialed up the magnification. Was that, um, people on the top? Buxton stared down at the grinders below him, leaning down on one ten foot thick protective housing right above them. He stared right into the massive glowing eyes that looked back. Howdy, sailor! He heard the female's voice over the radar. Buy a girl a drink! Bookston chuckled. We thought you were dead, he said honestly. I'm stuck. I came up from under me. I got caught on the cables and conveyors, then sucked into the grinder, Glory said. She wiggled her fingers. I'm okay. Probably scuffed up real bad, but I'm definitely stuck. The gears tried to reverse, jamming, and then tried to pull the massive skull in shoulder in. My feet and shins are outside the grinders, but they're hung up on my hips and shoulder, Glory said. Oh, no, I have to get some grannies to check it out. See if we can help you out, Buxton said. Hopefully no fall were Black Dead, 471 said. Can you move your arms, Blanex said. Glory shifted slightly and the grinders howled, showering sparks everywhere. Nope, my arms are in bad positions. I've got no leverage. Let me look, Casey said. He grabbed onto the edge of the housing and swung down. Wait, Blanex said. Casey dropped down, landing agilely on Glory's face. A man, first date, and you try to do me right in the face? Glory laughed. Don't kink shame me, Casey said, moving slowly and carefully. Buxton could see his feet had a bluish purple of active gravitation generators around them. Really, graviton? Wow, Glory said. Do you have any idea what it feels like to have you walk on my face with graviton boots? Don't kink shame me, Casey said again. His voice slightly distant. Kink-shaming is my kink, Glory laughed. The grinders whined, clattered, and buckled. Oh, starting to pinch. Enough leverage and pressure, and they'll bend the wall, Steel. Casey knelt down, looking at the gears. What do you see, Sergeant? Sergeant Addix asked. Drive shaft is exposed, and two of them. Looks about three to four meters of steel. he said. What? Buxton started. Shh, Buxton said, watching the Terran. Listen and learn. Looks like she shattered one of the grinders, and when it tried to bring up the new one, it hung on a shoulder armor, Casey said. To Vuxton, it just looked like a whirring nightmare of massive toothed screws. He started tracing the lines, looking at them. A small window in the upper right of his vision showed 471 was zooming in on sections. Stress points here, 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 and here, 471 said, tossing up red dots. Bearing housing covers here, here, and here. Casey, my greenies ID'd a bunch of stress points and stuff, Buxton said. Pass it to me, Casey said. What if it sucks you inside? Buxton asked Glory. My arm's at a banged angle. I might rip it off, she answered. Beyond that, I'd probably be inside a massive area where the ore and rock is pulverized, and I'd like to avoid that. Buxton remembered the first Tarquin War. How's your coolant? Good. All my lobes are intact, she answered. All right. ''We can get her out,'' Casey said. He jumped up and grabbed the lip of the top of the housing and pulled himself up with a hiss of loading frame hydraulics. Buxton noticed his eyes weren't amber any longer. ''I'll mark the areas in order. Those armor-defeating missiles you talcans use should do the trick.'' ''Sergeant Canton, I need ten men,'' Plunix said out. ''All with rocket launchers. you that, sir,'' the second sergeant radioed back. We're going to free your right arm. Once we do, I want you to pull it out. Brace yourself. And we're going to blow the driveshaft on the one on your left shoulder. Then one pressing in your chest, Casey said. With missiles, Laurie asked. Your wall steel could take a direct hit from them. Therefore, swap for precursor armor, Buxton said. Units on top of precursor megastructure mining vessel. Fire green star cluster flare if friendly, came a voice of the command channel. It was statically and full of pops and clicks. I read you, Buxton said. He ordered the round in his grenade launcher and reconfigured it to the right ammunition, aimed it straight up, and chugged out three, slightly spread apart. We validate three green star clusters, marked with a single red, the voice said. No voice, come. I use say again, we are not receiving you. Buxton fired a single red flare into the sky. This is 1st Platoon HHC, 1st Falcon Marine Division, he said. We read one single red flare. Signal and red-white cross-cluster flares. I say again, red, white, red-star clusters. When in need of assistance, the voice continued, one green flare of under-operation. Buxton fired another green. We read green. We'll designate spotter to overwatch. Pop orange smoke or two green star cluster if you need assistance at a later time, the voice said. Dremsel out. Talcum out. Dremsel looked back at the massive vehicle. He could see the Talcum Marines plainly, and they were involved with something on the massive vehicle's port side. But the huge scoop wheels blocked whatever it was that they were looking at. Can we even hurt that thing, he asked. Without kidding them. gunner shook his head. Negative, sir. That thing's shields could match a bolo. Dremsel frowned. Where the hell had it come from? End of chapter. Chapter three hundred and sixty-four. The war. Grand Most High Savish Mu Alutukuk trembled as he stood behind the last of his guard, twelve Lanikilani executive military force warriors clad in sleek black armor of the executive force, all carrying plasma rifles as they knelt down facing the doorway. The mansion shuddered as a flaming ball, shaped to look like a screaming Terran skull, dropped from the sky and hit the mansion grounds. Exploding in green and purple flames that devoured a few Lanakalan combatants left, but left the greenery and statuary intact. The mangonel that launched the fireball creaked as the Surian soldier in charge cracked his whip to encourage the short green-steamed creatures to haul on the ropes. Boolita'uk didn't look out the window, as blast shutters had sealed them off, leaving them blank. The smart glass was cracked to prevent it from coming on and showing enemy propaganda. The Grandmost High Executor looked at Mu Utluk, his tendril crest shaking in a combination of outrage and fear. How did this happen? Mu-Utla-Ark asked, his helmet open to show his fearful face. Because we're losing the war, Muk said. His hand went to his flank, where the wound had been cured by quick heal compounds and quick work by one of the few remaining medical technicians that still obeyed him. He'd been shot with a wooden projectile tipped with a sharpened rock called a flint arrow that had driven deep into the muscles and punctured the abdominal wall. Ustula Ak looked at Du'ulis's, the military most high. The grandmost high of the unified military forces had been killed when the screaming green maniac had burned a huge ornate axe in the landed land's chest, the axe rubbing through the high-tech armor as if it were tissue. That left Dululissus in charge of what few military forces remained. How did your forces fail to such an extent? Ustela Ark asked. "'My forces. What about yours, O high and mighty executor? "'We both had tanks, aerospace fighters, graviton strikers, armoured vehicles, artillery, "'and there we both were, hiding in the Most High's office, hoping that we don't get killed,' Doolis said. "'Mu'talauk noticed the Military Most High was only wearing flank carrying sash and satchel. "'Not armour, not carrying a weapon, just dressed as if you were going to be attending a meeting.' The mansion shuddered again as the flaming, screaming Terran skull slammed into the ferrocrete and exploded, cracking the Fork's marble lidia. They're cheating, that's how they must be winning, cheating somehow! Oostala'ok whined, wringing all four hands. Mu'utala'ok wanted to smack the executor. The sound of the plasma rifles firing came through the thick door, and the last three government officials on the planet stared at the door, wringing their hands. Do Ulysses spit his card in the reclaimer and got off his chair, struggling to his feet. It sounds like they are here, he said. An explosion called the dust to raise from the carpet, as well as to slowly drift down from the ceiling. The dozen executive troops licked their lips and tendrils, and readied the plasma rifles. The door is molecularly bonded, there is no way they can reach it, Ak said, trying to sound more confident. ''Did you send them a strongly worded missive informing them of that fact?'' Mu'utla'uk sneered before he could stop himself. ''I don't see you out there defeating them.'' Mu'utla'uk snarled back. ''What witty tricks of planetary bureaucracy are you planning on performing to save your skin?'' The twelve executive troops began trembling. One wondered why he was about to die defending these three idiots. ''I should have surrendered months ago,'' Mu'utla'uk lamented. ''There was another explosion.'' This one closer to the door. Get ready, men. Here they come. Ustalak snapped. Ulis shook his hand and closed his eyes and slowly counted to ten. A thunderous impact shook the door. Then another. And another. Black mist puffed out around the edges of the double doors, including down the center line, as another impact shook it. The lights in the room flickered twice. One of the executors depowered his rifle and loosened his grip. A plan had formed. It wasn't a good plan, but it was a plan all the same. He'd really like to go home. The door creaks and cracks extended even further. The door made cracking sounds and the leading edge of the axe bit through, showering the inside of the room with fragments of wood. So much for your impenetrable door, Doolesus sneered. An ornately etched and inlaid sword blade punctured the door right above the locks. It twisted, and the doors flexed. The doors sprang open. On the other side were a pair of savashan in heavy-plated archaic armor in the middle, two massive green-skinned bipeds flanking them, and a pair of tall Terran women with jet black skin, white hair, and a pair of scandalous amount of skin revealed. Eleven of the executive troops opened fire. The Twelfth dropped his rifle and laced his fingers together, Left lower hand to right upper, left upper to right lower, in an awkward movement. The plasma rounds hit the shielded that flared to life when the plasma packets hit. Instead of fireballs erupting impact points, it was bright flashes with sparkles. The shields were multicolored, covered in runes, and were obviously being admitted from the female Terrans somehow, who were chanting and moving their hands in a complex pattern. The two Shavashan and Greenskin bipeds jumped into the room, swinging their swords in the case of the Shavashan and axes in the case of the Greenskins, wading into the Executor troops. Ustela got a single shot off with his plasma pistol before a stroke of a sword cut off both arms at the shoulder on the right side of his torso. The return stroke opened his belly, parting Executor armour as if it were tissue. Nobody else got if any shots and the four weapon-wielders covered the room in blood and gore in less than ten seconds. Mutlok found the point of a bloody sword pressed against the bottom of his jaw, forcing him to lift his head slightly to avoid having the point slide into his flesh. Tell your men to stand down, it is over, the red-scaled Chevishan growled. What do we do this one, he no fight, one of the big greens said. Reaching out and poking Duelistus in the chest with a thick finger hard enough that Duelistus stepped backwards at a single step. Spare him, the red scaled one said. This one, no fight, the other greenskin said. Spare too? Yes, the red scaled Cherishan said. He looked up at Moutalook. Order your military forces to stand down, save their lives. And let you butcher the civilian populace in retribution, Motlok choked out. Never The other Shavashan, with the black scales instead of red, chuckled. Even at the sword point he still tries to bargain. By, would harm come to the Lanaklan's subjects? Her eternal Alvin grace, divine light of the Aether, lady of magic and power, Queen Redoslavov, of, of the eternal and graceful, had commanded that the peaceful, common folk, laden, of this world are beneath her protection, glory, and rulership. One of the tall, female Terrans with the pointed ears stated, Her ruler, as wise, beautiful, and as just as Queen Redislov of cherishes her subjects all, not just the ones who look as she does. Mu'utalook swallowed thickly, beating the sword point dig into his throat. Spare my life, my colts and fiddies," he said. Please, in the name of your queen. The red-scaled cabal stared for a long moment, smoke oozing out of his nostrils. Finally, he nodded, I will do so. You may kill me once I order them to stand down, Mu'utalook said. He pointed at the comlink. May I... The red-scaled Tsavishan lowered the sword, moving to the side. Mutluuk got on the comlink, ordering the last of the troops still fighting across the large mega-continent to surrender. Over the next ten minutes, each unit signaled acknowledgement. Finally, the last one signaled that they had surrendered. "'The fighting has ceased, my lord,' one of the pointed-eared females said. Mutluuk stared at the Terran's exposed skin. "'It was as black as night, as black as space.' as if she was carved from the living onyx. She wore lavender lipstick and eyeshadow, highlighting her pale eyes and pale white hair. "'I am ready,' Murtaluk said, tearing his gaze away from the Terran female. "'Please, uh, make it quick.' The Red Surian turned and looked at Murtaluk. "'I'm not gonna kill you.' "'You aren't?' Murtaluk frowned. "'If our situations were reversed, but I am not you.' I display my strength and power through mercy unto the defeated, the Shavishan said. Then what will become of me? Mutlok asked. The Shavishan pointed at the window. Open those, if you would. One of the Terrans waved her hands and chanted. Mutlok saw glowing numbers surround her hands, saw runes pop up and vanish as her fingers passed through them. The windows began to glow until, with a soft sigh, the smart glass and the shutters both collapsed into ash. Sunlight flooded in, along with a breeze. It smelled of soot and ash, of scorched metal. The lawn was pristine, just a few Lanaclan skeletons here and there, completely cleaned of flesh. You shall dwell here within your residence, with servants I shall hire to provide for your needs, the Red One said. A king in exile held at bay only by the might and power, by the power and the steadfastness of my allies ready at any moment to take back his throne and restore his tyrannical rule over the subjects of this planet. The phrasing was archaic, but Mutluuk understood. Much of the people, Mutluuk asked. There shall be much changed on this world. The Red One removed his helmet, revealing a scarred snout. As I learned beneath the firm, gentle guiding hand of Queen Rottoslavov, at times the best way to move forward is to return to the beginning. He looked out the window. For my people to flourish, to grow, they must be tended to. What about this one? The one of the green males asked. He shall be your former sister, most high's personal bodyguard, entrusted with the personage's protection and safety, the red one said. Will you adhere to the agreement, red dragon knight Astruk? The more thick bodied Terran females asked. Will you honor your promises to the house of Nazar, Ataman, and Zapan? The red-scaled one, Astrak, nodded slowly. The Shabishan people keep their promises, Mr. shrieking. This was silence for a moment. Murtaluk could faintly hear something, something that grew more plain each moment. With a shock, he realized what it was. People were chanting Astrak over and over. You must know, the Unified Species Council will never let us stand, Murtaluk said softly. The Unified Council would be better served paying attention to the Terrans and let the Shavishan people tend to themselves, Ostrook said. He reached out and grabbed his helmet. He turned to the two green ones. Guard the prisoners. Make sure they do not come to harm. Both of them crashed massive fists on their chests. The heavily armored Shavishan left the office. The conquest of Savish was complete. Manted Free Worlds. Many. Full membership. Nothing follows. Rigelian Surian Compact. Well, more like a probationary membership. Surians who go past hunt and eat face are pretty rare. Nature has a tendency to lock us into a never-ending cycle of hunter-gatherer. Nothing follows. hive worlds of like totally fabulous coolness. Kind of like us insectoids trapped by flukes of our biology. Like Sis and I trapped in our very own biological makeup. Nothing follows. Tinveru Rule 34 meme shop. Still, seems weird. They really are going back to primitivism. Oh, come on. I wish they'd stop that. Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism consensus. Eh, it's pretty normal. Let your people flex it a bit. See the edges. It helps them understand that we don't read their minds or anything like that. We're not big brother. We're them. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Copy-Paste Consortium. Hey, you're back. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. Yeah, just got back when Rigel pulled a full membership vote. I noticed all the heavy bandwidth use. Well, it would have been heavy bandwidth a few weeks ago. Now it's just notable. Nothing follows. Magic Free World's not for sale. How's it doing down there? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. Weird. Turns out we've been running on one of the emergency channels since the glassing. We're being slowly shifted to the actual Gestalt channels instead of the emergency channel. Nothing follows. Trinidad Biker Club and Dance Troupe. So, uh, those voices we're hearing are the repair crew? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Consensus Collective Cooperative. That's, um, something I don't quite have too much data about. The system says that there's three users locked in. i got the system ID off of two of them, but the third one is only referred to as the detainee. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial sentient Systems. Is that why you asked me for a full scan of IDs? Nothing follows. Cybernetic robot people from Mars want Earth Woman. Yeah. I got two hits. One is someone registered with your corrections and law enforcement database. A very young DS who hacked Nebula Steam a while back and vanished into the system. The other is a scientist that your records list as having been killed in an EMP lab accident. Nothing follows. This dumb people still talk after that. Just leave it alone. Manted gangster rap studios, now with more bass. Ugh, this keeps getting weird on us. End of. Don't use that, I'll crash them right now. Lime, I save. Biological, artificial sentience, totally not furries. So, I have a convicted cacker, a scientist, and a prisoner messing with the hardware for all of us. I swear, things are just getting weirder and weirder since we encountered those Lanik Nothing follows. Falcon Fluffy People. Aren't you worried they'll break the system? Nothing follows. Ackletac Bird People Talk Channel. Oops, Reflight, is that the correct label? They're messing with the backbone hardware. Couldn't then mess things up. Nothing follows. CYB Server Admin. You would have to have gone down the lower channels to see how messed up it was all down there. Trust me, they might be messing with the headers, but things are much better now. Nothing follows. D.A.S.S. Server Admin. Switching our headers is actually a good way to make backup copies. They might be doing a All the Users logged Off, Limited Chat Room Closing, All the Users logged On, Full Access Chat Room Enabled, Massive Data Transfer, Or even a full, uh, Wait, did something just happen? Nothing follows. Savashan Added to System, Savashan Permission Set to Trial Account, Savashan Protocol Set to Nanite Soup Data Gathering Analysis System, Creating Entropic Legion backup image of Savishan Prime Done. Rygenian Serene Compact. Okay, since when have we been able to see server messages? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. These are indeed strange times. Nothing follows. Pavian, what the hell is a puppy? Don't you remember history? Oh, I forgot. Okay, Gestalt. You said it, sister. Nothing follows End of Chapter. Chapter 365 Terrasol The day was sunny and warm with just enough of a breeze to cool the person off if they were out in the sun. The fountains marbled and chuckled, the waters sparkled and the mist throwing off rainbows. The leaves and the bushes and shrubs whispered as they rubbed together and the flowers nodded sagely in the breeze. The pathways were white stone, put it together neatly, quiet. "'rather than bored. "'On the bench, a portly man of middle age "'sat in a full-space-force dress uniform. "'His dress top folded over to the back of the bench beside him. "'His dress shirt beneath the top was neatly creased "'with medals and awards glittering in the sunlight. "'He held a bowl of strawberry ice cream in one hand "'and was eating it with a long-bladed knife, "'obviously relishing every last bite. "'He had an eye-shade's, his dress had covered his folding scalp, and his expensive wristwatch gleamed in the sunlight. Trianidad that passed by noted that, oddly enough, the borderly human held his knife at the correct angle, shaved rather than gouged the ice cream, and ate it properly by turning it slowly to keep shaving away the softened and partially melted ice cream. The best part... On the public announcement, Tri-V hologram, near the fountain, the news reporters were talking about the success of one of the largest humanitarian projects in history, the saving of the injured land prisoners. Everyone knew the story. It had been reported repeatedly. Talk shows had discussed the ethics and morality of not only what had been done to the land prisoners by their own people, but on the ethics of whether or not heroic measures to save their lives. Some believed it was cruel to allow them to languish, near all scorch and in pain. Others believed that standing aside and letting them die was depraved indifference and anathema to the Confederacy. That left only euthanasia, another prospect that was wholly against the Confederate morality. The Terrans on the Terran Confederacy had a bad history with euthanasia, eugenics and the like. The solution had been so obvious, once it was revealed then many of the Terrans who had been paying attention to the news had not gotten bored of it and all collectively facepalmed. Now the news shows were all showing the same image. A sleeping Lannaclan soldier, his sash proclaiming his name, his rank, his world of origin and other vital statistics still visible, encased in what looked like smoky glass. The sleeping one stasis pods used to ensure Lannaclan's survivors remain alive until treatment can be devised scroll across the bottom. The man eating the ice cream paid no attention, instead watching a good two dozen Ruggelian males puddling around the sparkling pond, walking at one another and happily pulling up weeds to munch on, surrounded by little tiny versions of themselves. He smiled as two of the larger little ones, their brown feathers shining in the sun, paddled away from the big duck that they had been clustered up to. They were making self congratulatory peeping noises as they sped away. The little web feet paddling for all they were worth, thrilled with their escape. They stopped to rest, breathing heavy and peeping at one another to congratulate each other on the daring escape, so that they could chase water bugs and maybe even eat one. They had successfully paddled really far and really fast, and now they couldn't be told what to do at such a distance. A little over five yards from the big one that watched them with an eye. The man's watch beeped and he smiled, setting down the bowl and the knife before setting a hollow emitter on the ground in front of him. He tapped it to bring up the holographic keyboard and then tapped on it for a few minutes. The driver's show appeared in front of him and he picked back up his ice cream and knife. It was a historical documentary regarding early near sea slow ship expansion of Terran descent humanity. He watched it as he ate slowly. At one point, the show was going over the precautions that the mid-generation slow ships had taken to ensure that they could travel at the massive speed of .25C in safety. The man's jaw dropped open. He just stared as the show went into crudity of the technology. On the hologram, a woman dressed in a military uniform was standing in front of a great lens held in a brass frame with glowing wiring leading to it staring at what looked like empty space. The man dropped his bowl and shifted his grip on the long-handled knife as he stared. He slowly moved the blade over and began sliding it up and down his forearm, each stroke scraping a tiny edge of lint off of his sleeve dress shirt. But he paid no attention, staring at the hollowed. At one point he reached down and poked the hollow-emitter with his knife, using the point to rewind the shower and watched the entire section on slow ship navigation and piloting again. He picked up his bowl and returned to slowly eating. At the end of the section, he summed up the holographic keyboard and began typing, then leaned back and watched the technical education show as he finished the last of his ice cream. He ate a crunch bowl, ignoring the dust in it from where he had dropped it, slowly eating around the edge, around and around. When he finished, he picked up the hollow emitter, sheathed the knife, and walked away briskly. It was right there, right there all along. How could I have missed it? Missed all of it? The man thought to himself, sweating from a profound realization that he'd just had. Dr. Miles Mary McManfro O. Oh, nervously smoothed her dress as the door slid open to reveal the grass around her. The park was somber, hundreds Thousands, tens of thousands of hovering greyish glass-looking blocks arranged in concentric circles. She moved down the steps several other doctors and scientists following her, following her lead. At the bottom of the steps were waiting military officials, all of them who looked particularly grave. Also present was a civilian woman who was wearing morning clothing and looked somber. Doctor, one of the gathered military officers stated, holding out his hand. She shook it out of reflex. She had to admit the man had a lot of medals, belying his portly and unmilitary luck. The general introduced everyone high ranking military and civilian officials, medical personnel, scientists, historians, and one of the descendants of the man encased in the great glass. She listened to the reasoning of what was going to happen and stared, shocked. It was impossible. Nothing could help the man. But, It was so simple. How had nobody ever considered it? Third Master Gunnery Kate Karawa of Ui stared at the Terran General, nodding slowly as the information was processed by his brain. Krau Atauka was horrible, nearly scorched, reduced to one of the Lost Ones, a jump-drive technician of the Great Promise, just wiped away by the Great Herd templates. Do you understand what I'm saying? the General asked. Crow-over-Ui had been slightly intimidated by the first at the Terran's habitual action, then realized what it was. The Terran had two long-bladed knives, one in each hand, slowly rubbing them against one another as if he was using one to sharpen the other. Yes, Terran, Crow-over-Ui said slowly. You believe that you can reverse the new scorching? The General nodded. For us to try, we needed your consent, your informed consent, To attempt to experiment with your brother, as his nearest available family member, you can make that decision. Crow over Ui, thought for a long moment, then nodded. Since I recovered from illness, since I have seen your mental health providers, I have come to understand my emotion that I am feeling. A longing to have my brother return to me. Familial love for my brother, and fear that this will not work. The human general nodded, his knives moving slowly in circles against one another. Please, if you can restore my brother, bring him back from madness and loss into this life I'm experiencing. I beg of you, Terran. Please, please restore my brother, who was my strength in the times we ate unflavored nutrapaste, Kruuva Ui said. The blades stopped moving. I promise I'll do my best, the Terran general said. Ui believed him. After all, Terrans had beaten the great herd. Didn't that mean that they were capable of anything? The general lit a cigarette as he watched from the observation balcony. He was separated from what was going on below the stirry fields, macroplace and distance, but the small glass brought it up close. Dr. Miles Mary MacNuffer-O had switched from the male body he had met her in to a female body with long fingers and sharp vision. She was standing over the sedated Lanaklan, with a thick lens between her and the Lanaklan. The lens was held in place by an ornate bronze frame accentuated by jewels and inlaid with precious metals, the surface carved into patterns. There had been one of the device still in existence— it had been a little starship that, ironically enough, had carried word of the Lanark-to-Land attacks upon unaligned worlds. The starship had used archaic methods to reach jump space, had relied on millennium-old technology to get the speed required to transition to jump space. The lens had been a vital part of that ship. Yet It had withstood the rigors of the trip with all the resiliency that its makers had instilled in their culture and with everything that they made. Rather than risk any flaws, the Confederate scientists had used matter transportation replication technology by building a set of Type 1 Mattrons and copying the item. The original was back in storage, under heavy guard. It still worked because it had been built by a martial people, who had instilled with it the perseverance of their martial culture. The doctor bowed it up and a general leaned forward, drawing the knives from his belt and slowly scraping the long blades against each other. The doctor worked quickly. In front of her was a massive lens, beyond that was a combined scanner, P T C A T E G, all the three-letter medical devices that looked to be a brain in a multitude of different ways. She brought up the scanners, then following the instructions by the historical reenactment specialist, Three historians and two digital sentients watching began adjusting the image of the lens. The image of the Lannachlan brain went from severely neural scorched, with dozens of microstrokes, to just apparent neural firing. She made a 3D holographic image of the brain as if she was taking a SUDS recording. At her direction, the historians, the reenactment specialist, and the DSs adjusted the lens again. The neural template was tangled with the Lannachlan's brain, A confused welter of signals and completed against one another. She made another Suds snapshot. They shifted the lens again. Not far this time. Slowly, carefully. The DS watching the doctor. The doctor made a chopping motion. The technician stepped back from the lens. The doctor stared. The Lanarkt Talans brain scan, as if it was about to be recorded for Suds, shone sparkling on the lens. Sparks showering from where the two blades scraped one another as the doctor made a suds 3D template scan of the Lan. The general smiled, exhaling smoke. kra Atuuka opened his eyes, instinctively looking for predators. He could hear the beeping and muttering of medical diagnostic equipment, smell the typical smell of a hospital. His brother, Ui, sat in a comfortable-looking chair. Wearing flank coverings and a sash vest combination that looked easy to wear. Crow blinked a few times, then licked his dry lips and swallowed. Hail to the great herd! Crow Uva Ui said softly, his voice trembling with fear. Water! Crow Otauka rasped. Brother! Water! Crow Uva Ui began to weep as his brother recognized him for the first time in over a year. ''Doctor! Doctor Oh, A question, please!'' The reporter shouted at the doctor, who pioneered restoring the sleeping ones and the lost ones. The woman paused at the edge of her armored limo, one hand on the top, one hand on the door. She sighed. ''One question!'' The reporter nodded, quickly selecting the most important question. What prompted the idea to use a temporal lens, historically used for space travel to avoid debris and dangers, to look at the past version of your patient's brains, the reporter asked. Dr. McEnfro, stomach twisted slightly at the lie that she was about to tell. That the person who had come up with this idea had refused any and all recognition for his idea. I had been examining night neural scorching and went to Lounge to relax and think. They were showing a historical documentary on the slow ships and how they navigated. I just thought to myself, if only there was some way to look into the past and see their neural templates, when the program began showing the section on temporal lenses. It dawned on me that if the temporal navigation lens could look forward in time, the same with the Confederate Space Force C-Plus cannon Fire Control Systems, Then it would have to be able to look backwards, she lied. After that, it just all clicked together. But um, what about, the reporter started. No more questions, Dr. McMahon for O said, turning away and climbing into the limo. The five-star general in charge of terrorist space force and military shut off the news program and looked at the portly general relaxing in the comfortable chair in his office. The portly man "'was slowly scraping two long-bladed knives together. "'I still don't understand your insistence that you'd not be credited with your epiphany,' "'the commander-in-chief of the Space Force said, turning to sit comfortably behind his desk. "'I would never get any respite,' the portly general said. "'My nerves are still frazzled.' "'The CICSF nodded slowly. "'The knives were more than for show. "'They were literally mandated therapy.' The general possessed a medical profile allowing him to not only carry them, but to do what he was doing. I imagine they still are, the CICSF said. Being visited by an angel is a bit disconcerting, General Tic Tac said softly, his hands still scraping the blades together. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video, I hope.